0: Hello and welcome to the 10x9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran and we're just going to do things slightly differently this week. I just want to take you to the magic of our live events at the Black Box in Belfast. This week we had wonderful stories on the theme break. There are three of them on this podcast for you. So let's just go and enjoy the
1: evening. My name is Padraig Tuma and this is Paul Dorn. We started 10 by 9 in 2011. Nine people up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their life and we're delighted you're back and we're delighted you've come here back to the black box. We really missed being um, having it live during COVID and we were delighted to have it on Zoom but it's lovely to be back here. Who's here for the first time? Oh, loads of you. You're all very welcome. It's great that you're here. Um, everybody who is going to read a story sends it in. So it's not an open mic. And um, we probably won't have to. But if anybody is kind of jauntily passing over the 10-minute line, we have a subtle way of letting them know um, that they have been delighting us long enough. Now, if your granny is dying at 9 minutes 59 seconds, we'll give you five extra seconds to bring us through the process. But um, we will honk that we pass over to Paul.
0: We encourage people to interpret the theme as works for them. So for some people, maybe the poster makes them think of a holiday, a trip abroad. For others, it might be about a broken limb, a broken heart, a broken engagement, whatever. So we've got a, a nice variety of stories for you this evening. There's nothing else really for me to say, I think. So I'll hand you to Padraig to introduce our first storyteller.
1: We always love having people who are telling a story for the first time, and for our first story tonight, we have a first-timer, so please give a lovely 10 by 9 welcome to Melanie Bowden.
2: We've just seen our son, Peter, married to his life partner, Caitlin, last Saturday, and what a day that was. Of course, like all good wedding stories, we have one relating to a stag party. The male members of the bridal party decided a trip to Prague would be a great venue for the stag event, and this was arranged and planned with much delight, as it had been a long pause from holidays abroad for everyone over the last few years. Meanwhile, myself and my husband Darryl thought, as everyone would be away over Easter, we too would head off for a break to Galway. I'm not sure if any of you have boys in your house, but they don't tend to listen to the detail of what's going on, especially in relation to things that don't involve them. So, two weeks before the stag adventure, EasyJet emailed to say the flights had been cancelled, and the new flight times they offered proved unsuitable. Peter, the bridegroom, made an executive decision then and there that his next favourite place to go would be Galway. As you can imagine, we were delighted to hear both our sons and their five friends would now be in the same town at the same time as we would be. A family stag. Who knew that was a thing? (laughs) After an eventful trip down involving one of the cars being crashed into by a motorcyclist, no injury, thankfully, everyone arrived in the city. Over the few days away, we met various members of this male bunch who were drinking coffee. Well, that's what they told us. They were wandering about and generally having a very good time. So far, so good. Two of the bridal party were well-qualified martial arts enthusiasts and, of course, you've guessed it, keen to show their moves. One move meant holding their opponent in a very restrictive manner. So it's like this, right? So to be released, all you had to do was tap out. What harm could come to a bridegroom? Height five foot seven, alongside an opponent over six feet. Quite a bit, as it turned out. As Peter, our hapless big forgot to tap out and twisted free instead. Not being an eyewitness, I cannot fully explain what happened next, except they both came crashing down. And after taking a moment to recover, it was felt perhaps a stiff drink might well help the pain which was developing in Peter's foot. So off they went, walking back into the city. Having dulled any pain overnight, the following morning this was no longer the case. His foot was twice the size it should be, a pretty pattern of blue and black all around it and aching to move. A bag of frozen peas hastily held to the foot, perhaps a little late, as they made their way home, did not seem to help. Meanwhile, we were oblivious to this adventure, a point we made very clearly to the bride and her parents. When we all met up, however, back at home, I felt it was time to intervene and see if someone with a professional healthcare background might be able to help rather than a guitar maker, a lorry driver, an IT programmer or a movie maker. So off we went to A&E. The Ulster Hospital staff are to be praised for their grasp of the importance of what had happened and their laughter could be heard resonating around the department as it was announced that Peter, the bridegroom, had sustained a stress fracture to his metatarsal. he came, in a relatively short period of time too, in a plaster cast with crutches and an appointment for the fracture clinic the following week. Our other son Tom was reminded he was supposed to be at the stag to look after his brother, but he said he knew that, but it was very funny the way it all happened. Looking in the bright side, the wedding was still on and no one had been replaced in the bridal party. As you do before weddings, friends were invited to call by to enable the bride and groom to meet those unable to attend the wedding itself. Some of these friends were the parents of the boys who attended the stag holiday. On arrival at our house to meet the couple, they were all very keen to get their disclaimer in at the very start of the evening. My son, my young fella, my, that fella, they had nothing to do with Peter breaking his foot. They were nowhere near him when it happened, you know. This led on, needless to say then, to some very funny stories among the middle-aged sharing their break stories that they'd had in the past and how everyone stayed friends. Platitudes like, you look back on this and laugh, and sure your uncle broke his collarbone before his wedding, didn't seem to raise the same smile with the current couple about to get married. It is amazing how levelling a break or fracture is in a group of people from all ages. Granny and her friends had sympathy for Peter when he said the crutches were very sore to use as they knew what it was like after their knee replacements. Others produced plastic leg covers they'd used in the bath to protect their plaster and one person even suggested using an oxygen tank for a couple of weeks to speed up the healing. So, as the Saturday of the wedding drew closer, the bone was healing well, and our bridegroom had now a boot in place, replacing his need for crutches and letting him get around much more readily. The wedding attire for the bridegroom meant a plaster wasn't going to work with the suit on the day, but the boot replaced any further need for a plaster cast. A kilt was out of the question, apparently. So that boot became an important wedding accessory. The night before the wedding, the same fabulous group of men came to stay over at our house at this time, and we, as responsible parents, were in charge the whole night. We made sure the bridegroom, best man, and the groomsmen were all washed, sorted, dressed, and arrived well ahead of the bride and the bridesmaids to fulfil their roles on the day, and the best man remembered the rings. Whilst others have their weddings in areas which are accessible to all, these two wonderful people had planned and prepared for months that their marriage ceremony would be in a wooded glade down a slope and the feasting and dancing would be in a barn in an uneven yard close by. But, like all good stories, this one has a happy ending. The boot was flung to the side, well, for the photos anyway. And the bride and groom got hitched, agreeing to live in sickness and in health forever. It was indeed something they'd trialled before they said, I do.
1: Thanks very much, Melanie. First timer, and so we look forward to your next story. And any people here who think that you have a story to tell when you hear about our, um, our themes for the next few months, um, let us know. Or if you think your friend next to you has a story to tell, especially let us know. We love that.
0: Most of you here are new to 10x9 or even if you're not new to 10x9 but haven't or weren't aware we are on Twitter Facebook and Instagram uh, we won't clog up your feeds with uh, dreadful uh, inane posts we'll just let you know about upcoming events about themes um, about special events there are a few of those coming up and we'll also remind you that we're here come along and join join us uh, we're always free we are always looking for new storytellers. You may notice tonight that we are 10 by 7. So that's, I feel like a failure. You know how I cope with failure and it's not very well. So if you have a, an idea for a story, if you see a theme and think, oh, I might have something, uh, get in touch with us. We'll help you to bring it to fruition. Uh, even a scintilla of a slither of a story um, and we can work it up into something. Stories can come from anywhere. And we pick themes that are designed to help stimulate your uh, imagination, or not even your imagination, your memory, I suppose, because we are looking for true stories, needless to say. I think that's about all the boring housekeeping done, so please, a big warm welcome for the wonderful Eliza McCafferty.
3: Directory Inquiries, Eliza speaking. Which name, please? Hello, Leslie. Can I have the number for the such-and-such bank, please? Which town, please? Belfast. Which branch? The one with the white van parked outside. Give me a break. It was July 1996, and I had just moved back from uni in England to Derry and got my first proper job as a 192 operator. Scenes from the Olympics in Atlanta were beaming in on the TV in the break room and a group would gather to cheer on Michelle Smith in the swimming. Cable Tell was digging up roads, and Northern Ireland was coming to a standstill as events at Drum Cree unfolded. It was a family affair, as I started on the same day as my brother. My boyfriend's mother worked there, as did neighbours from down the street. It was such a big employer, locally. Some of the more experienced staff told me I wouldn't need the clock on the wall or a calendar or even need to look out the window to see if it was night or day as the types of calls would inform me. All of them told me I'd need a crystal ball. I would learn after my training that this was true. Monday mornings was the dole, bus stations, techs, and evenings would be takeaways, police stations and taxis. On my break I would nip up to William Street Baths for a swim and be back down to log in on time 30 minutes later. I can't believe I was fit for this. If you logged in so little as a minute or two late, you would have to sign in late. This was never a problem for me. And one of the managers called me kidney stones as so I had zero make busy time, the time recorded when you weren't taking calls for nipping to the loo. But I had a real problem with my call handling time. You had to be so fast to keep your job and I was struggling to build a pace. My two trainers were lovely, particularly Valerie, persevered with me and even came in on my night shift after her working a week of day shifts to see how I was getting on and then got me a day shift as the calls would be more straightforward and quicker to help me build pace. On some calls I noticed people were telling me the time. I thought they were telling someone walking past them but then I realized when I was saying which town please they thought I was asking for the time. I learned to round the vial a bit better to speed the call up. There were shorthand codes to learn to speed typing, and there isn't a phone operator who doesn't ask themselves County Down or County Turon when they hear drum It was drummed in from day one. We had to know the phonetic alphabet off by hearts to pass too. Alpha Bravo Charlie. Also the name of one of the operators. When asked for Tato, he'd ask which flavour instead of which time. LAUGHTER and more often than not, people would tell him a flavour instead of (Laughter) The phonetic alphabet was crucial, as without visual clues, communication could be difficult. A Belfast faxes would be foxes, facets would be faucets, and a Ballymena eggs would be eggs, eggs for eggs, right? Calls from England I'd get, oh, listen to your lovely Ballycus Angel accent, or you Scottish bastard. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be so tempted to tell them F for foxtrot, U for uniform, C for Charlie, (laughs) K for kilo off. (laughs) Only a manager might be listening in on a spot check. Day Day and evening shifts brought prank calls. From kids, kids giggling away at a payphone, inspired by The Simpsons, looking for Amanda hug and Kiss, <laughs> or a bot, I want to see more bots. <laughs> it was so funny, but you had to be careful, as I once cut off a caller looking for a Phil McCracken, who really was looking for a Phil McCracken, <laughs> and I was red-faced explaining and apologising, and they couldn't understand why I might have thought it was a, a prank call. Some calls would be silent and you'd hear a breathy, burbling baby playing with the phone or a spray of polish as someone cleaned their hall table and hadn't realised they'd dialed. (laughs) On a day shift, the floor could reach fever pitch. Voices raised in frustration. That number is ex-directory. Ex-directory. Put your mother on. No, I need a surname. And the group with musical Tourette's in the corner would burst into a spontaneous refrain of... Sweetheart of Jesus, <laughs> font of love and mercy. <laughs> I preferred the night shifts. It could be just as hectic as a Monday morning, especially at weekends, but it was a different atmosphere with fewer staff as the town slept outside, traffic lights changing sequence to no cars and orange pedestrian crossing lights blinking to no one. One lady rang in a panic as hair dye she had used had reacted to her hair green. She was looking for a chemist to get a shampoo she named that was supposed to offset the green, but later that night she rang again as it hadn't worked, and that was looking a chemist that she thought might be open. Some calls were from the lonely and desperate, and some were, well, one caller asked me what I was wearing on my feet. (laughs) I could hear what he was doing with his other hand. And I gasped in horror and cut him off. (laughs) Later, a colleague who had been sitting a few desks away, who started training a week or two after me, but seemed more clued in, spoke to me so no one could hear and told me that that caller from earlier would keep ringing in. And when you cut him off, the call would come in each desk along. So to keep the call handling time down, tell him green flip flops and red nail polish. (laughs) I was shocked and asked if she knew, and she told me she asked him. I couldn't get over it, but a few evenings later, I heard the voice, What are you wearing on your feet? I tentatively tried saying green flip-flops and red (laughs) polish, and sure enough, he went away happy. (laughs) I sometimes find a pair of cold plastic flip-flops in my bed, as this has become a running joke at home. As that July passed, I managed to speed up my sluggish call handling times, sometimes taking seconds instead of minutes a call, and I got to stay in the job. I will always be grateful to Valerie, as she gave me the break I needed. By Christmas, my call handling time was improving. Even the foot fetishist was cutting to the chase. Are you wearing (laughs) 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 flip-flops? Christmas Eve was just as busy as other nights. A caller from England rang at 11 pm looking for a pet store chain as they'd just gone up to the attic to get the hamster they'd hidden a few weeks earlier, but it had escaped and they'd found the cage empty. I remember thinking, Good on the hamster, not getting fed for three weeks, but being slightly perturbed for that child's Christmas morning as no one was getting an open pet shop for a couple of days. It is only occurring to me now, though, that something smaller must have got into the cage and got an early Christmas dinner. It would be a few years before I would hang up my headset, and I learned so much from that job, from call-handling skills to dealing with distressed callers and so much geography. I learned so many local, lesser-known parts of Northern Ireland, and from a call to another operator, I learned where Uganda is. He's in the house with your granny. (laughs)
0: In case it wasn't obvious, Eliza's from Derry, um, and it's great to have wonderful Derry stories tonight, but it is so Derry when you say, my cousin worked there, and my auntie, and my It's so true. Thank you very much, Eliza, that was brilliant. Next up, I'm going to say this for the first time ever, I think, the next story comes from my husband, Gotuma.
1: Uh, It all began when I was living in Australia. I was going into the city to see a photography exhibition detailing people living with HIV in the past decade in Melbourne. I was meeting a friend, Alex, and I was a little bit early, so I needed to pass time before she came. This was the year 2000. I didn't have a mobile phone. So I did what any sensible person would do. I went into the Salvation Army charity shop, or the op shop, as the Australians call it, and I browsed around for 20 minutes. And it was there that I found it the teapot. I've always had a great fondness for a good teapot. I believe they say something about the character of the person who uses them, and this one was absolutely perfect. Pottery, squat and round, rusty red brown, a generous spout, a huge capacity without looking like it was an industrial thing, and a lid of character. And to top it all off, it was $5, which in those days was two pounds sterling. So I bought it and loved it. And when I say loved it, I actually mean I loved it. Morning tea was made better by this squat brown pot. I grew mint leaves especially so that I could make mint tea in the pot. And it wasn't just me who loved the teapot. Friends would often come round and say that there was something lovely and homely about this humble pot. And I'd beam. I didn't own much those days, but the pot owned me. I love the teapot, my friends would say, and I would say, me too. Op shop, five dollars. And we'd marvel at it. I lived in Australia for four years, and when time came to move back to Ireland, I wondered if I should pack it in my suitcase, send it in a meter cube box of shite I was sending home via a ship, or take it with me in my hand luggage. But I was spending a month backpacking on my way back from Australia, so I sent it via the ship. And it arrived unscathed, and it found pride of place in Dublin. And my new housemates in Dublin said things like, if I was to choose a teapot that had your personality, this would be the teapot I'd choose. And I chose to take that as a compliment. And after a year in Dublin, I moved again up to Belfast, also unfortunately known as the graveyard of favorite teapots bought for $5 in an Australian charity shop. I know. It happened like this. I had a house full of friends, some people living there, loads of people coming to stay for a weekend, sleeping on sofas or near sofas or regularly enough on the kitchen floor. None of us had money, but that's why God invented Lidl. For £2.50 per person per day, I'd shop and somehow manage to make curries and soups and bread that fed us all. And one night there was a crowd of nine or ten of us having a meal. Food, cheap wine, new friends, candles, early 2000s, all of us in our late 20s, and wondering what that could mean. My new housemate Heidi was there. As soon as she'd moved into the house, I loved her. Canadian, magnificent, an artist. She was always making things, including her own clothing. And she arrived, got the vibe, and made friends with absolutely everybody who came through the door. An emotionally unavailable straight Australian friend of mine was visiting too, That's the same teapot from Australia, he said, and I beamed yes, hoping he'd also add, I love the teapot. But he was not a man who appreciated the finer things of life, neither the teapot nor me, unfortunately. (laughs) Over the course of the evening, we were all singing and telling stories. Someone sang a funny song about spooning your best friend, and the emotionally unavailable straight Australian man said, what's spooning? Everybody looked at him aghast. What is spooning? Now, most of us had more zeal for the Lord than sense. And those of us who weren't celibate weren't telling anybody that they weren't celibate. And even I, who was well on my way to the priesthood at that stage, knew what spooning was. And someone tried to describe spooning to the emotionally unavailable straight friend, but he looked awkward. And then Heidi, who was broad and warm-hearted, said, here, come on, I'll show you. She got down on the ground she curled into a semi-fetal position and put both her arms out to him and said, come on, join me. And he looked like he wanted the couch to swallow him. But Heidi was still there, like Gaia, the mother of the earth, inviting him into her arms. Come on, she said. It's lovely. Let me show you. But the Australian was having absolutely none of it. It was funny and moving and lovely and a bit sad. And that's when it happened. Heidi went to get up. Someone had moved the little table on which the much-loved teapot sat. And when she was getting up, she bumped the table. And that the teapot fell and cracked in two. Only a few days later, Heidi and I had had a lovely conversation over breakfast about that pot. I love it, I said. So do I, she said. She really was the loveliest housemate. I know it'll break sometime, I'd said, and I really don't know that when it does, I'll have to not grieve. It's been with me for so long. Five dollars in a charity shop in Australia, I said. (laughs) Hopefully it'll last a long time, Heidi said. I'll help keep it safe. And we'd poured more tea and talked about art or Jesus or making your own clothes or whatever it was that we were talking about. When the teapot broke, everyone looked at the spilling tea on the rug, but Heidi looked at me. If you could choose the nicest person in the world to break your favorite teapot, it was her. She got it, and I kind of knew it was going to break eventually. And we compensated by going looking for new teapots in the second-hand shops up and down the Falls Road. If my emotionally unavailable straight Australian friend had only gone down for a bit of platonic spooning on the floor of my living room, <laughs> everything would have been different. I'd probably still have that fucking teapot, $5 <laughs> in a charity shop from Australia. And Heidi moved in with some other friends the next year, and I didn't see too much of her. She was busy. But I remember chatting to her once, and she was telling me that she was always feeling tired and getting headaches. And then one day, somebody said to me, did you hear Heidi's gone back to Canada? It turned out the headaches weren't just headaches. She had a brain tumor. We'd spoken about it a lot, actually, because loads of her relatives on her mother's side had tumors, a few aunties, cousins, and now her. It was very serious. After the first round of treatment worked, she resumed life teaching art back in Canada and getting married to a man she'd loved since secondary school. And She came back to Belfast once with her mother during that time to visit the old haunts, and we met up in common grounds for a chat. And she died a few years later, just 29, warm-hearted as the world is wide. Her local newspaper carried an obituary. Heidi was whimsical, reckless, compassionate, dramatic, carefree, flamboyant, artsy gorgeous spirit and was loved by everybody whose life she touched I don't have a photo of the teapot but I do have a photo of Heidi she was the best person in the world to break your favorite teapot
0: Thank you very much, Patrick. I can't um, speak for Heidi, I never met Heidi, but I can assure you, teapot collecting is real and <laughs> wherever we go, we will be visiting a second-hand shop. Patrick came back from Australia once and he said, what well, do you see this? And he brought out this and it was a milk jug. And I said, you brought that all the way from Australia, a milk, a very plain milk jug. And he said, yeah, 50p in a sh- second-hand shop. And I, Sweet Lord. Anyway. And what an amazing night of stories on the theme
1: break. I want to thank the storytellers again and the audience too. The stories are made by being heard and being told. Thanks very much for coming along. Come to more, listen to the podcast, and we'll see you the next time. Good night. <laughs>